Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 235 for February 11th, 2010, Machine Language. Security Now is brought to you by GoToAssist Express, the easy way to provide instant tech support to your customers remotely. Support smarter with GoToAssist Express. For a free 30-day trial, go to gotoassist.com slash security. And by Astaro. Contact Astaro at www.astaro.com or call 877-4ASTARO to schedule a free trial of an Astaro Security Gateway Appliance in your business. And by Carbonite, the leader in online backup. Back up your PC or Mac off-site securely and automatically. For a free trial offer plus two free months with purchase, go to Carbonite.com, offer code TWIT. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers security, privacy, what you need to know before you go online and... The man who does this all for us, the great Steve Gibson. He is the guy in charge of the Gibson Research Corporation, GRC.com, the head honcho there. He's also the author of uh, SpinRight, world's best file, uh, rather hard drive recovery and maintenance utility. And he's uh, got a lot of freebies up there, too, at GRC.com. Good morning, Steve. Hi, Mom. Oh, I mean, hi, Leo. <laughs> is your mom wa- Does your mom ever watch? <laughs> no. no. She had enough of me while I was growing up. I think that's... <laughs> <laughs> Were you kind of nerdy as a kid? Oh, goodness. Yeah, I mean, going on family vacations, I had to drag all of my strange gadgets and things with me just to keep, so I had something to play with. Well, now, but wait a minute. Now, you and I are the same age. When we were young, gadgets were, you know, I mean, we weren't talking... Uh Sony Walkmans. What what, what gadgets oh, do you have? Switches and diodes and resistors <laughs> and things. You probably no, had a, you had a crystal radio, didn't you? I was building things. Yeah. Oh yeah, I had to. You know, I had projects even back then. <laughs> Absolutely important stuff to do. I can't really take time off for a vacation, but if you're going to make me go to the beach, fine. <laughs> I'll figure out something. You know, some trouble to get up. I don't to. know how your parents felt about that, but I would welcome. I think that's just great. When I see a kid that's got like a passion about anything, it doesn't matter. That pain, no, I understand mom, mom that. I was that worried. She's like, she? I'm not going to, not quite, we're not quite sure what he is. So, <laughs> well, you were a little just ahead of your time. That's all. Yeah, I was definitely in trouble. So, <laughs> so uh, today we continue our series on uh, uh, building a computer from scratch, right? We're going to do something so cool. Um, the goal which we will achieve, we've achieved it before, is to so thoroughly and completely demystify and explain something that our listeners are going to end up thinking, uh, wait a minute, that's all there is? That's it? That's, that's what the big deal is with programming and machine language? That's simple. And it's like, yes, it actually is very simple. And so that's what we're going to do today is I'm going to, we're going to, Essentially, design a machine, now that we understand from two weeks ago how gates are built up from resistors and transistors, we're going to look at what machine language actually is and why it's no big deal. It's, it's really not. It's, 
how you use it and build on it that gets complicated. But that's true of any computer language. Anytime you're taking little tiny itty-bitty steps and it takes a lot of them to make something go, well, the steps themselves are simple. It's the the building on top of them that gets complicated. But the steps are easy, and we're going to understand that by the end of this podcast. I started programming when I was, uh, I wasn't a kid. I was, I think, you know, personal computers didn't come out until I was in my 20s, so I was maybe 25. And I started in basic, as a lot of people did, but but very quickly got to, when I, uh, on the Mac, got to assembly language, 68,000 assembly. And 68,000 assembly is beautiful. It's very clean, not like the 8086 IBM assembler language. Which I, True. I, I played with a little bit. But I think it was a great discipline to learn intimately how a computer works. If nothing um, else, I mean, I know you still program an assembler. It's I do by choice. Um, it's my feeling is somebody who really understands, no matter what language you're programming in, if you understand something about what's ultimately happening in the basement, you're just better able to make choices. Programming, programming, coding is all about making choices. You're trying to solve a problem. You need to. You need to cast the solution in the the way you express things to the computer. And there's a huge amount of freedom, which is why programmers, I think, program, is they really like the, the freedom and the responsibility that there's – it's just so open-ended. But It's a fully uh, creative that, act. It's just like a painting or anything else, although, well – it's math and science. I mean, math well, and art, isn't it? And science with and it art. comes responsibility. Yes. I mean, we've heard a lot uh, this last couple of weeks about what happens when you don't quite get your braking software correct on a Prius. Oh, yeah. That and one we, second delay, it could kill somebody. Yeah. there was, it, it, there, There's a, a bug in the Prius software switching from the physical braking to the regenerative braking and... That wasn't quite synchronized properly. And I mean, so, you know, I'm shivering a little bit as I hear this because, you know, we know anyone listening to this podcast for, well, <laughs> the last four and a half years has a, has, will, will have acquired an appreciation for how difficult it is to get software exactly right. And if you've got software controlling the braking of your car, which is obviously what we now have. Mm -hmm. And and arguably, cars are going to become more software-controlled moving forward rather than less. Then it becomes really important to get it right. Yeah, we're kind of like uh, airline pilots now with fly-by-wire yeah. uh, technology. It's not, you know, you push your foot on the brake. It doesn't actually anymore move the yeah, calipers. There's nothing connected. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's coming up. We've got security news, and there's some big, big news, too, uh, and some uh, updates. Before we do that, though, Steve, if you don't mind, I'd like to quickly mention our friends at Citrix, the folks who do go to Assist Express. If you're in the uh, software business, you have to support software. I know, Steve, you do, and you've got a guy who does this. Um, if you're an IT person, of course, uh, it comes up all the time. You need to get into a customer's computer. Now, does that mean you go to their house? Well, sometimes it does, but that's not really a very effective way to get the job done. Same thing if you are the uh, IT person for your friends and family. It's a heck of a lot easier if you can do it remotely. Now, of course, everybody knows Citrix has the best remote access software. It's the it's the underpinning for Windows own remote access. It's the enterprise level uh, remote access from Citrix. It's Citrix. It's go to my PC. Uh, it's go to meeting and go to Assist Express. It's that same strong backbone 
but it's tuned for the support professional. Things like, for instance, you can have eight sessions at once. And that's really, really important because if you're working on a computer and now you start a scan or malware bytes or an install, you don't want to just sit there. What are you going to do, play World of Warcraft? You want to go to, well, you could, but if you want to be efficient, you go to the next one and the next one and the next one. You can have eight things going on at the same time. You don't, it can be unattended. They, your client does not have to be there. First time, of course, and that's the other beautiful thing. Your client does not have to be sophisticated in any way. You merely send them an email or you open a chat session with them. You give them a link. You say, this is what I need. I'm going to get into your computer. Click this link. It goes to go to Assist Express. Actually, it's go to assist.com. It, it installs the software on their system very quickly, very easily. It's so easy for them. I, I've done it with my mom, let's put it this way. Very straightforward. And now I have full access anytime I need it. And if she gives you permission, even when she's not there. Lots more. Things like telling me what operating system, what stuff is running in the background. I can go on and on. But the best way to try this is to try it free for the next 30 days. If you're in support, if you're in IT, or maybe you just want to find out what this is all about for your family and friends, go to assist.com slash security. Go to assist.com slash security. That's the website. You can try it free for 30 days. No obligation. Uh, I, I, I love it that Citrix does this with all their products. It's really a great way for you to find out if it's the right thing for you. Please try it. Uh, I think it's great. I use it. We've been using it since the screensaver stays. Go to assist.com slash security. We thank Citrix for its really great, unequivocal support of the whole Twit network. Their support really makes it possible. All right, Steve, shall we start with the patches? Yes, well, we had a quiet January for Microsoft, for which they have fully compensated for February. Um, we're just after the second Tuesday of the month in February. Microsoft released 13 bulletins covering 26 vulnerabilities, 11 of those bulletins affected Windows, and two were for Office products. <laughs> There's even one for Microsoft Paint. If you open a, a malformed JPEG in Microsoft Paint, you can have your computer taken over. It's like, okay, well, maybe that's not a big problem, but it's good to have that patched anyway. Yes. Um, most of them were rated highly exploitable in Microsoft's kind of wacky exploitability index, which is their way of saying how likely it is that the vulnerability could actually be turned into something that Windows users need to worry about. Um, uh, interestingly, uh, one flaw was in the new IPv6 stack um, in Vista and Server 2008. It's possible to ping a, an IP6-enabled uh, Vista or, or 2008 server machine and take it over. So that's being fixed. Um, so basically, rather than going through every one of these, there's sort of no point. I mean, it's it's most of them are remote code executions. They're scattered throughout the operating system. Um, significantly, the problem we talked about last week, which uh, was shown at the Black Hat conference in D.C. the week before, has not been fixed. It is still hanging out there. Presumably, it just came up too soon for Microsoft to get this thing fixed. And that was the, 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 um, the exploit that turns your Windows machine into a public file server, which uh, is not something you ever want. Yeah, good, it, that's, what, that's what got you first started on this whole security thing is that uh, open file shares. Well, it's, exactly. It's when Microsoft's policies 
allowed that to happen too easily. Um, so, you know, now with the firewall running, they've closed that down. It turns out that there's a way to to trick IE into opening a connection to a remote bad location that gives it access to your entire hard drive. Um, this was demonstrated at the Black Hat conference. The details are not public. The The guy who figured it out is waiting until Microsoft fixes it, and then he'll show everyone how he did it. So I'm sure Microsoft is on the ball with this one. I'm sure he's got their attention, and we're not going to be waiting six months because at some point this guy's going to say, okay, I'm, I'm done waiting. Here's how you do this. Sorry, Microsoft. So... Uh, anyway, everyone wants to, you know, run through Windows Update, get get themselves current because there was a bunch of things that uh, that need to get fixed. Also, I wanted to mention that just in terms of calendaring, Microsoft's support and security terminations are approaching. Microsoft recently reminded the world through some of their various newsletters that as of April 13th, so a couple months from now, uh, Microsoft will no longer be issuing security updates for the original version of Vista. Um, I don't know that that's really that important because certainly anybody using Vista would have moved to Service Pack 1 or Service Pack 2, hopefully. So um, uh, Vista will end up, uh, the security updates will end up being terminated. Um, and then we have six months before Windows 2000 completely gets all support for Windows 2000 stops. Um, and um, even XP Service Pack 2 will stop at that time. So certainly Service Pack 3, which is the current one, should be running by that time. And uh, and then you'll be able to continue getting security updates for that. Um, also in security news, Apple's iPhone and iPod Touch had multiple vulnerabilities fixed recently. Um, anyone using their iPhone should make sure they're at 3.1.3, which is the current release, both for the iPhone and the iPod Touch. Um, from Apple's site, there were a bunch of things, not none of them very good news. There was a, a, a problem in their core audio system. The, the Apple says the impact is playing a maliciously crafted MP4 audio file may lead to unexpected application termination or arbitrary code execution meaning that you could you know make and basically hide a trojan in an mp4 audio file that's really and bad i mean we, we always say you have to execute a program to get onto somebody's system but what can also happen is a malformed data pro and we've seen this on windows before like a jpeg or a pdf malformed can allow a hacker in but boy you don't want to see that on a phone <laughs> exactly. especially with a built-in player you know Exactly. And in fact, they had a, a similar problem in their image I.O. library where by Apple's own statement, they said viewing a maliciously crafted TIFF image may lead to an unexpected application termination or arbitrary code execution. Um, and they had a couple problems in WebKit and a problem in recovery mode. So those things are fixed. But exactly as you say, Leo, these are important, especially in something as connected as the as the iPhone, so I think, all users I think increasingly, need... as you see smartphones become so prevalent, you're going to really uh, see more and more attacks on this because it is always connected. It, you know, there's there are vectors that you have through Bluetooth and stuff as people carry it around or through yeah. hotspots. And uh, really, isn't that where you want to be? Is on the phone? You'd almost better than a computer. Well, and we've seen instances where 
there were like malicious text messages where you could just right, text right. somebody and in the in the phone in 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 the process of the phones receiving this specially crafted text message which there was no way for it to block there was no way to turn that off it would take the phone over so yeah these things are are definitely important and staying staying current with known patches is very important because what the bad guys of course are doing now is when the patches come out they analyze the fix to to reverse engineer the problem and then they they exploit the problem on the assumption, which is unfortunately too often true, that not everybody has yet installed the fix. So the, good, the good news on the phone is as soon as you plug it in, it says there's an update, and it's pretty trivial good. to do it. it but, well, good and not bad, because then there is a whole group of people, not huge, but a whole group of people who have jailbroken their phones. And, of course, they don't patch because the patch immediately breaks the jailbreak, and, and, right. and, and so they wait until the jailbreakers say, okay, it's safe to update. Now we have a fix for it. And that means it could be a week, it could be a day, it could be a week, it could be months before you can patch. And so that really does open a vulnerability. Yeah. That's, I stopped jailbreaking because I, for many reasons, but that was one of them. And now especially. Um, uh, CNET reported that the FBI has been pressing ISPs again. This kind of keeps coming up through the years. Again, pressing ISPs to retain records of every URL visited by their customers. Um, Drew Arena, who's Verizon's vice president and associate general counsel for for law enforcement compliance, said, um, quote, we're not set up to keep URL information anywhere in the network. If you were to do deep packet inspection to see all the URLs, you would arguably violate the Wiretap Act. So there's some pushback on this. Um, but what we're really seeing law enforcement working to try to get ISPs to log everything that their customers do. This keeps coming up. I thought this was, oh, you know, remember Carnivore, the the FBI uh, thing that that they wanted ISPs? In fact, I think many ISPs actually are running it. Yeah. um, And in fact, um, uh, uh, a guy named John Seaver, an attorney at Rice at Davis Wright Tremaine, who represents cable providers, said that one of his service provider clients had experience with a law enforcement request that required the logging of outbound URLs. He said 18 million hits an hour would have to be logged, which is a staggering amount of data to sort through. The purpose of, in this case, of the SB, of the FBI's request was to identify their customers who visited two specific URLs to, quote, try to find out who's going there. So that's really scary from a, from a, you know, from a pure technology standpoint. The idea being that the FBI would say to an ISP, give us a list of all the people, your, your customers, who visited a specific domain or specific you know, set of URLs. Um, the problem with that that I have with that from a technology standpoint, and as you don't know, Leo, we don't control the UR users. End users do not absolutely control the the URLs that our browsers go to. We click on links, which you know largely we're not clear about um, necessarily what the link is. If you look down, you know, in the 
in the URL monitor field of your browser and hover over the link, you can generally see, but JavaScript can also obscure those so that you don't get a URL report for where you're going to go. And even when you do, you bring up a page that inherently contains accesses to other resources, which could easily be bad, you know, c coming from domains that you don't visit, but your browser does. So I don't know. This whole thing is just very troubling. Um, it's, it, I mean, I can, I totally understand from the law enforcement side the frustration they have. But it seems to me saying to a, a, a service provider, we want the identities of everyone who's ever gone to such and such domain. That, that really seems like overreach. Yeah, I, you know, this is that, this is, comes back to that whole Patriot Act thing where uh, people are willing to trade liberty because they are afraid. <sighs> yeah. and, uh, and, and so it's easy, especially now and with the war on terror going on and stuff, to kind of push this stuff through. But uh, boy, it just, it does, it scares me. I hate to see that happen. Now, I wanted, I picked up on a little bit of news that I knew that our listeners would jump on and be, start sending me email because this is, this sounds really bad. And it's, if nothing else, it's really interesting. Um, and that is the news that the trusted platform module, TPM, that we've talked about many times. And trusted. Is, and trusted, uh, which is installed on the motherboards of, right. Pretty much all current laptops and now many desktop machines. Certainly on business laptops. It's on my, my Dell business laptops. Yep. Don't tell me. Uh, it's cracked. <laughs> well, I thought this was uncrackable. This couldn't be this. Sort was, of. Oh. Okay, Chris, I, I, a, a very talented and skilled hacker, a hardware hacker by the name of Chris Tarnovsky presented, some, presented sort of a crack at that same Black Hat conference that we were just talking about. Um, let me tell you, let me explain what he did. Uh, it took him six months of work during which he did nothing else and a tremendous amount of skill using off the shelf chemicals. He soaked TPM chips in acid to dissolve <laughs> their hard outer shell. Oh, this is how, this is how you have to look and see what's inside. You have to take the, the, the package off. Literally, yeah. he, he, he removed the package. Then apparently, there's actually a, a mesh wiring, which is around the TPM inner core, specifically to provide RF shielding, which I think is very cool. So he used rust remover in order to, to remove the mesh wiring to expose the chip's inner cores, <laughs> and then used microprobes on the circuitry, on the actual physical circuitry face to, to monitor the signals passing inside the chip. And of course, once he found the right spots, he found the signals just upstream of the cipher and so was able to get the plain text out of the chip that way. Well, okay. Um, uh, many people were uh, distressed that this was possible. I'm I'm glad that it was done because it says to the guys making the TPM chips, uh, and the, in this case, it was Infineon, which is like the number one supplier of these chips. 
it says that they, I guess, they need to go a little further toward physically protecting the chip. On the other hand, I mean, this is a far out, you know, extreme instance of of hardware hacking. You know, what I want is for the the chip in my laptop to keep some keys confidential so that when I swipe my finger, that's authenticated in the chip and then the hard drive is unlocked and, and I'm able to, to go about my business. Um, I guess what this means is that if someone really, 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 really wanted to get access to my hard drive and they had forever with my laptop, that is you know, long enough to surgically dissect the chip and pull those secrets out of it, that it is possible. Um, I don't think... It's not common, I, not likely. Yeah, I, I would have never stated that it was not possible. Right. Um, the good so news did, is... So is this different for every chip? I mean, does he have to do it to my chip to crack my chip? Exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's so this, fine. I mean, I don't it, expect somebody to take my <laughs> right. lap, take my laptop, apply acid and rustoleum to it, and then say, "Oh, I got you now." By yeah. that time, <laughs> yeah. So, so, and, and even then, he said that um, he said he still had to crack the internal algorithms, which was a huge problem. And there are traps programmed into the chip software. Providing another layer of defense. Well, so this I mean, is this actually is, pretty good news in the long it's run. It's really good news yeah. now. And, and as, as I said, I'm a little glad that this came out because presumably that you know the chip manufacturers will go, oh, um, guess we got to go a little further. I mean, basically, what they want to do is some sort of self-destruct technology. I mean, literally, where it, where the act of exposing this to to probing renders it un- unusable. And it sounds like that's, you know, the one thing that isn't quite there yet is, you know, I mean, l- literally like Mission Impossible style self-destruct where it just, it will not function any longer if this has been done to it. So I imagine there's a way they'll be able to do that. Now they know they have to. Right. Thanks to to Chris's work. Right. Well, um, very interesting though. In troubling news, two Trojans were found in Mozilla hosted plugins for Firefox. Oh, this was only a matter of time. I know. Um, I mean, it, it, Mozilla, to their credit, goes through extensive efforts to scan the plugins to make sure there's nothing evil in them. They received a report that something called Master Filer had a Trojan which had to have come from them. They checked again, and none of their 20 different scanning solutions found it. So they added two more, which did find Masterfiler. Then when they rescanned their entire library of Firefox plugins, hmm. they discovered one other, which was a, a web video downloader, um, from a, a pretty neat company called SoThink that is a Chinese company that uh, was the sort of the leader in Shockwave Flash decompilers and now actually has a bunch of authoring tools and, and other good things. Um, there, you know, it's not at all clear how these Trojans got in there. Um, but anyway, they were found. 
And um, Mozilla said that um, uh, 4,000 copies of the SoThink plugin were downloaded. And, and the dates are strange because they say February 2008 to May 2008. So that was, of course, oh, a while years ago. ago. Yeah. And the master filer was installed about 600 times from September of 2009 to January of 2010. So um, I'm not really sure what those numbers say, but that's what, what was in the report uh, from Mozilla. So, you know, it's certainly good that they added additional testing and, you know, not a huge user base was installed, um, but, you know, it's been fixed. So if anyone does have, um, and Mozilla has said, if you have the master filer plugin and the web video downloader version 4.0 from SoThink, um, you certainly ought to uninstall it and then run any AV software you've got um, and then update if you want to put it back in. The, the current versions the, on the Mozilla site are now fixed. So is this SoThink's fault? Um, I don't know. Um, you know, we've seen instances where where something has gotten into the production systems of software makers such that they shipped software unbeknownst to them that contained something malicious. Um, I don't know enough about the way plugins are posted on Mozilla's site to know whether, you know, you know what the channel was and wh- whether it came infected from SoThink. They claim, you can imagine, vehemently that that was not the case, that there's nothing wrong with their version 4 downloader, but, you know, who knows? Hmm. And it does sound like it was a couple years ago. Yeah. In any event. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but I imagine people, some there are people listening who haven't, so. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, one last little bit of, of randomness. Um, th- I, I saw a report that was sort of interesting. Uh, Trustee's uh, report, uh, report uh, browser security service analyzed 4 million users of of this security service and determined that just shy of half, 47% of all these 4 million users are using the same username and password to log on to multiple sites, including their banking logons. And, and that of course is the, you know, represents a substantial danger. It's one thing, you know, to use the same logon both for Twitter and Facebook, but you don't want to share those logons with, you know, B of A and Chase and so forth, you know, your banking um, credentials. So I just sort of, you know, having seen this, I wanted to suggest to any listeners who have said, yeah, 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 we know we're not supposed to use the same username and password, but it's too much of a pain to have separate usernames and passwords for everything. So we're going to take our chances. I just wanted to suggest that the one exception, if it hadn't occurred to you before, would be to consider that not all of your logons are equally important and that, you know, those um, which are extra sensitive really do demand their own username and password because it is, it is this... You know the 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 danger of a of a Facebook or Twitter account being cracked, and we we hear about that happening in the news all the time. That the the idea would be that the bad guys could assume, hey, 
if they know that half of users are sharing usernames and passwords across accounts, that you they can look at a system's cookies in order to see what your banking credentials are because your bank's got cookies that's left behind on your computer. That tells them, you know, where to try to hook up and also provides credentials um, for, you know, because cookies are used for easy logon. So that really does create a path for malware or bad guys to log on as you and do bad things to your bank accounts. So, you know, if you haven't, if you haven't changed your most important logons to something different from the most popular logons, I really think it's worth doing. Very good, Mr. Gibson. Um, Yes. One of the things that was <laughs> pending was an analysis of LockNote, right. which is a right. very cool little app that I talked about months ago. And I promised last week that I would analyze it since it was open source with the source published over on SourceForge. And more importantly, since they provided no documentation themselves about what it is they were doing. They just said, trust us. And I was like, okay. Um, the good news is I did analyze the source and these guys deserve the, the gold medal blue ribbon for doing the right thing security-wise. The, the passphrase which the user supplies is concatenated with its length and that is hashed through a, an SHA-256 hash to produce a 256-bit key. So that's exactly what you want. That key is used to drive uh, an AES-256 cipher. That's, so that's the Rheindahl cipher with its maximum 256-bit length key. So it doesn't get any better than that. Then they use a very strong cryptographic algorithm, the so-called cipher feedback algorithm or, or cipher feedback mode, CFB. What that does is it takes an initialization vector and encrypts it under the key, which, as we just said, is derived from hashing the user's passphrase. Then the output is XORed with the plain text, which is being encrypted, to create the ciphertext. That ciphertext is then fed into the next round of encryption under the same key, the output of that encryption is XORed with the next block of plain text to create the next block of ciphertext and so on. What this does is it creates a chain of dependence from, from the beginning all the way through the end so that, so that any change in the ciphertext ripples through to the end and they use a very good cryptographically strong pseudo-random number generator for the initialization vector such that even if you were to encrypt the same text again, that is, if you, you know, every, the way this lock note works, it builds an XE, which, you, which someone who you send it to or yourself, you, you simply run it. And if it sees that, 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 the, that its contents has been encrypted, it prompts you for a passphrase. So you put the passphrase in, it hashes it, and then runs through the decryption process. 
They also use a full cryptographic strength MAC, a message authentication code, to verify that it hasn't been tampered with and that no changes have been made. So, you know, they did everything. It is as bulletproof. These guys clearly know their crypto, uh, which is great news. And having looked at this, uh, I can tell our listeners that uh, this is as secure as it gets. I mean, everything was done right. That's great. So use it. Use it without with, without, without fear. fear. <laughs> without fear. Um, I did have uh, sort of a fun spin right story to share with our listeners um, from actually someone who's um, in uh, not far away from us in Claremont, California, named John Irvine is his name. Um, and he, he, uh, he sent the note with the subject, Spinrite saves my free hard drive. He said, Steve, I just wanted to let you know about my Spinrite experience. This past week, December 18th, I believe, my laptop had slowed down. A little history. I got the hard drive from a friend who took his Toshiba laptop to Best Buy for warranty service. Well, we know we've heard recently what they do about that. He says they took out the old drive and put in a new drive and ran system restore. He called me from Best Buy and asked if I could get his data off. I told him to bring it to me and I'd try. I set the drive up on a desktop with an adapter and the drive came right up. So I retrieved his data and he let me keep the drive. This was an 80 gig drive and I currently had a 40 gig in my laptop. So I swapped the drives, ran my system restore on my Dell, and it worked perfectly. Fast forward 18 months, and my laptop was running very slowly. So I stuck in my system restore disk as my laptop has duplicate data from my desktop. Well, the system restore disk stopped, the formatting at 91%. I tried once more, and 91% again, it stopped. So I got out my ultimate boot for Windows CD and started that up. It formatted to 91% and stopped. Well, it was now time to buy Spinrite. I had been meaning to, but did not have a need until now. So I purchased the software, burned it to a CD, and stuck it in my laptop. It went to work, and in about three hours, it had gone through the first 90% of the drive. So I was very interested to see what it would do at that Critical 91%. Well, as it arrived at 91, it started working and working hard. It stayed on 91% for 30 hours. Then moved to 92%, 93, 94 in about 25 hours. Then it got stuck at 95 for another 30 hours. Oh, man. Then finally, (laughs) it hit 99.4%. And stuck on that one, stuck at that point for 24 hours. I admire his faith because, to be honest, I would have rebooted a long time before that. (laughs) That's amazing. He says, at hour 110.06 or colon 06 colon 09, it finished its scan and my hard drive now works perfectly. I do not know if this is any kind of a record. But I was impressed that it stuck with it through the whole process. Thanks for a great product, John. I'm, imp- I'm imp- frankly impressed that he stuck with the whole process. Spinrite has no choice. 
He's just the guy. Let, that's it'll pre- go until you say quit or until it succeeds. <laughs> and it succeeded. It's pretty amazing, really. Yeah, it's neat. But that, and it isn't a record because didn't we have a, uh, an email from somebody uh, a couple of years ago that was like, <laughs> it took six months or something. We got people right, who are just sort of so fascinated by the process. They'll, just, they'll like set it up on some computer they're not using at all just to sort of see if it can, you know, turn lead into gold. So... It, and, and off it does. So just to, to, to clarify for people who, who haven't listened to the show uh, as as thoroughly and as assiduously as I have, uh, what's happening is Spinrite will continue to read a sector and kill it until it gets the data off of it, which sometimes is one time in, in a thousand. It can read it pieces at a time. It can read sectors that, that the it'll even read what the drive won't read by pulling the data off. And then essentially reverse engineering what the problem must be in order for wow. the ECC to get corrected. Wow. So it does all kinds of things. And, and and the operating system will not do that. I mean, it no. just gives up after a few tries. The system sort of says, it basically stubs its toe and says, okay, you can't have that file back. And for understandable reasons, you wouldn't be thrilled if your operating system waited 110 hours to come back to you and say, okay, I loaded the file. <laughs> that wouldn't be good. No, no. we don't want that. No. Uh, this actually ties very well into our uh, commercial, and we're going to get on with machine language. Are you going to derive it from first principles? Yeah. Sure. We're just going to, yeah. Why not? Yeah. Of course. We says have Steve an hour. Gibson. We, we have an hour. I Let's can do, do that. that. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to just relive the entire history of computer technology over the last 40 years, and yeah, we'll do it in an hour. No big deal. So let me mention before we go uh, into that. Our friends at Carbonite.com, the, the tie-in is good because, let's face it, you know, of course, Spinrite will recover amazingly, recover a huge variety of stuff, but there is no substitute for a backup. And I don't think, Steve, you're saying people shouldn't back up because you can just trust Spinrite. No, you've got to back up, right? Right. right. I mean, you, you, well, come on, let's not be crazy here. So if you back up, let me talk a little bit about backup. You know, you should. it's easy to have an external hard drive where Steve burns DVDs of his data, and that's great. But you also have to have an off-site backup. Peter Krogh, who is a, a great photographer and an expert on something called digital asset management, he wrote a book called The Dam, D-A-M book. And uh, he has a great page he did with the Library of Congress on best practices for photographers who, of course, can't afford to lose, uh, you know, even one picture of that, you know, that that bride with the kiss after the. You don't want to lose that one, or the picture of your kid taking his first steps. Or so, uh, so uh, Peter has a really great three, two, one process. He talks about three copies of everything: one on your main computer, one local, and one off-site, and that's what's really key. He says stored on two different media. So you don't, you don't rely on, say, just hard drives. That's really key. And uh, the one is uh, something else. I don't remember. <laughs> but the three and the two are what are important. Carbonite is off-site backup. It's automatic. It is great for the less experienced people in your family, your friends, maybe even yourself, if you're the type, as I am, who forgets to back up. And you can go right now and try it for free. You don't even need a credit card by going to Carbonite.com. Offer code TWIT. And you'll get to two free weeks if you decide to sign up after the free trial. You got to do the free trial first, but if you decide to sign up after the free trial, you'll also get two free months. It's less than five bucks a month. It's fifty five dollars a year for everything that's inside your computer. Now, it doesn't back up the operating system. It doesn't need to. It doesn't back up applications. It backs up your personal data, the stuff you created. It does it automatically. Of course, you can add folders, but it does it pretty. You know, you just install it. It starts immediately trickling that data up to the Carbonite servers. Steve, you are talking about AES-256. That's what it uses to encrypt it before it leaves your computer. We talked a little while ago about the, the uh, 
passcode. Carbonites modify that. They listen to us and they say, you set the passcode. You do not reveal it to us. So it's so it's AES-256 and you set the key. So there is no one in the world but you that can get this data. Uh, you also uh, have 128-bit SSL as it's going up. So, I mean, really, this is double protection. You can download it from any computer. They even have an iPhone application that you can get your data from. And that's really nice. It means you have data access. You can check to make sure the backup is there. It's good. They're put, they've got versioning now. I mean, they're just really growing fast. And, and the new Carbonite Pro, you've got to check that out. But, I, but if you're an individual, a consumer, and you want to try Carbonite, or you've got a family or friend who just doesn't back up, uh, this is, I got to put this on my mom's. Mom's on Mac. It's Mac or PC. It does have to be an Intel Mac, late model Mac. Go to Carbonite.com. Free trial if you use the coupon code TWIT. After that free trial, and they really want you to try it first. I think that's really important. All our, all our sponsors do this. You'll get two free months if you use the coupon code TWIT to buy. C-A-R-B-O-N-I-T-E, Carbonite.com. It's backup. Simple. Done right. Back it up. To, you got to back it up to get it back. That's all. Yeah, that's all there is to it. I had lunch with, or dinner with uh, David Friend, the guy who started it, and you'd be you would love David. He uh, he uh, after he got out of college, Steve, he founded a synthesizer company. He was a, a double major in music and engineering, much oh, cool. like you. You remember ARP? Oh, of course. That's his company. Uh, he neat. created ARP. Isn't that neat? And uh, it had great success. Uh, he sold it, I think, after a decade or two of making synthesizers for the biggest names in the world, Steely Dan, everybody, the Who. Uh, then uh, did a few other startups. And and his daughter was in college, had a laptop, lost all her data. And he said, "This and you know, he's an engineer, right? He says, there's got to be a better way. And he and he created Carbonite. And that's been, it's been six years. It's, it is now the, the largest off-site backup company in the world it's it's so huge so successful and they've really done a great job and you would like them because they're responsive you know when you said oh the key immediately they fixed that yeah um they really the guy's engineering driven he you would i'm, I'm gonna get you two together because you would really love him but enough about that let's let's get to machine language <laughs> okay where do we start well two weeks ago we sort of laid down the foundation by demystifying and and or and nand gates and and how you could cross connect two inverters that would create a little memory cell which could remember if it was set to one or set to zero a so-called flip-flop and i wanted to i wanted to convey to people the sense from back in the in 1960 essentially for for the number of components that were required to do even the simplest things. So now we have gates and, and the ability to create a register of, of individual bits which, which can be read and written. So how do we... How do we literally, how do we make a computer? And I know from, from talking to people so much, there's sort of this mystique about assembly language and machine language as, as if like you have to be some galactic guru in order to understand that. It's like, oh, that's like really, you know, deep voodoo. 
And, you know, I'm going to use C or Perl or PHP or Python or something. Um, the truth is that what's actually happening down at the hardware level is really simple. And, and I mean, I'm going to demonstrate that now by, by looking at a and, and sort of designing, developing right now with our listeners a completely workable, usable computer using only what we understand, no magic. And, and I believe that once we've gone through this exercise, sort of wiping the slate clean and just saying, okay, let me just think about this, people are going to end up thinking, well, okay, that's it? And the answer is yes. I mean, it's, it's not that big a deal. So we have... We have memory for any machine. Back in the the early 60s, um, we had gone from drum memory to core memory. Drum memory was sort of the predecessor to core. The idea being that um, you'd have a magnetized drum that was spinning and literally use the impulses coming off of the drum as the contents of the computer's memory. Thank goodness that was replaced when this concept of of cores, little tiny donuts essentially that are magnetizable in in either a clockwise or cl- counterclockwise direction. We've talked about it once before. Um, the idea being that that this memory could store a one or a zero based on whether the individual little donut was magnetized in one direction or the other. And you could you could tell which direction it was magnetized in by forcing them like a set of them all to zero. If they were already at zero, nothing would happen. If they had been at one, then the act of switching their direction would induce a pulse in a so-called sense wire. And that would tell you that, ah, we just moved that one from one to zero. Well, that was called a destructive read because the act of reading the contents destroyed the contents. We, we wrote zeros to everything, getting pulses out of those ones that switched from one to zero which meant that we, unless we wanted to leave the zero there, we needed to rewrite the original contents in order to put it back, which is what these memories typically did. So, so, if, so let's imagine that we have memory, core memory, which is, is non-volatile, meaning that it just, we, we, we can magnetize these little cores and they'll stay set that way. And we have a way of reading out the contents of a location and getting the, the ones and zero bits that are there. So the first thing we need to have is a what's called the PC, the program counter, which is a, it, it, it's a counter which increments one one at a time reading out the contents of successive words 
of this memory. Now, the word length can be pretty much whatever we want. Um, there were word lengths back in the beginning of as much as like 36 bits, sometimes even more. Um, the early deck machines were 18-bit word length. Um, and people are used to thinking that these days in terms of 16 bits or 8-bit bytes, we know, for example, that um, the Pentium machines were 32-bit machines. And, of course, we now have 64-bit systems. So these are the – currently, there's been complexity added to what the so-called word length means, um, which we're going to actually talk about in two weeks. Um, we'll, in two weeks, we're going to talk about all of the the stuff that's happened since. But back in the beginning – the the word length was whatever the designers wanted. Now, there was pressure on keeping it short because everything cost so much. You know, remember that back then, this is before integrated circuits. So a bit that you had was a bunch of circuitry that that you had to pay for every time you made one of these machines. So... Sure, the programmers would like more bits because that allowed them to store more stuff. But the management <laughs> was saying, wait a minute, we can't afford this many bits. So they sort of, there was sort of a compromise. So if we look, for example, we don't really have to worry about specifically, but just sort of imagine you had 18 bits because that's that's where the first machines of this era sort of landed 18 sort of being a compromise of, of different pressures, cost, and capability. So we have a this program counter which will address the memory sequentially, basically stepping through it. So, so say we start at location zero. So out comes 18 bits into a register which we call the instruction register. And it's just, it's one of these registers made out of individual bit memories, which we talked about last week. And, you know, they're all expensive, but we can afford 18 of them. So, so this, this instruction register holds the, the memory, the, the, the data that we just read out of a given location in memory. So what do we do with that? Well, there's, there's essentially a, a, a subdivision of the bits into different purposes. And a term that probably everybody has heard is opcode, the operation code. And sort of traditionally, the opcode has, has been on the left of one of these long words. So... For example, in, in the case of this computer we're making, we'll, we'll dedicate some number of bits to the opcode. So, okay, what does that mean? Well, what things do we want to be able to do? We want to be able to load and store memory. Uh, we want to be able to add and subtract and maybe perform some logical operations. Now, we're performing these against 
something called the accumulator, which is another register. We have got we are, we have the instruction register. Now we have an accumulator, which is sort of our scratch pad, so that that's the the main working register where where the data moves through, where we perform these operations. So, for example, if an instruction said load a certain location into the accumulator, then the computer would would transfer the the data in a given location in its memory into the accumulator. And if another instruction said store that somewhere else, the computer would store whatever happened to be in the accumulator now into the location specified. So so we need to be able to perform some operations on the the data in this accumulator and sort of so this is everything is centered around the the accumulator with with the, with the rest of the um the rest of the hardware sort of all existing to serve the 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 purposes and needs of this accumulator so if we had an opcode of say 5 bits well, we know how binary works. We know that each bit gives us twice as many as we had before. Five bits means that there's 32 different combinations of five bits. So if we think of those as sort of as the verb of this instruction, we could have 32 different things. And in fact, the PDP-1 was an 18-bit computer that did have a five-bit opcode. Um, but back then, 32 verbs, 32 actions that you could specify turned out to be more than they ended up being able to use. So as the as the deck mini computers evolved, and in fact, with the very next one, which was the PDP-4, there was no 2 or 3, the, the 4 and the 7 and the 9 were, and finally the 15 were the 18-bit lineage. They dropped the opcode to four bits, which is where they stayed for, for quite a while, for many years. Um, so four bits gives us 16 different verbs, 16 different things we can do. So, for example, the, the opcode, meaning the first four bits of this word, might be 0000 or 0001, 0010, and so forth. Each combination of those four bits would specify a different action and just you know one simple action so absolutely one of them would be load the accumulator with something in memory now where in memory well that's where the rest of the bits come in well let's so, answer that question in a moment <laughs> when would okay. be a good time to interrupt you i gotta i have, I have one more commercial i want to get in here yeah. would this be a good place Perfect. Kind of a cliffhanger. But where? <laughs> where, where in memory? Where in memory would you put that? Before we, uh, before we get to that, and th- I tell you, this is a fascinating subject. And, you know, as I said, I've programmed a machine language, but I love the, the, the construction that you're building here so that it, it, it all makes sense in a, in a better way. This, is, this kind of had to be this way. Uh, but let me talk a little bit about the folks from... Astaro, Staro Security Gateway. This is a product that uh, was our first advertiser on this show. In fact, our first advertiser on the Twit Network, I believe. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. 
constantly working to improve what is, in my mind, unequivocally the best security device out there. They use both open source and closed source software as appropriate to give you the best firewall in the business, of course. You know, all the, all the buzzword compliant, stateful packet inspection, blah, blah, blah. Intrusion detection, of course. But, but then they've added some really nice features that are, some, some of them just for convenience. For instance, uh, OpenPGP and SMIME support for encryption and digital signing is built in. So outbound mail can all be signed if you want. Or you could do it in groups. You could do it by IP address. You could do it by user. Uh, it can all be decrypted on the way in, encrypted on the way out. This is really nice. Um, of course, you've got the security that you need with three antiviruses, two for email and one for the web. So even when your users are surfing the web, they're protected because uh, the, 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 the ASG is looking at what's coming in and, and scanning it as it comes in. That's a high-performance, very nice device. You could take a look at it. Actually, the best thing to do if you, is to try it in your small business so you really get a sense of it. Uh, if you go to astaro.com, you can sign up there or just call. You know, the best thing to do call 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. A-S-T-A-R-O. 877-427-8276 is the number. 877-4-STARO. Now, if you're a uh, non-commercial user and you, you're interested in Astaro, there are a number of ways you could try it for free. There's a great VMware appliance. It's one of the top VMware appliances out there. Uh, or you just download Astaro version 7 from astaro.com slash security now. And they've done something I think is so cool. They've upped the number of users. I think it's like 100 users. I, I can't remember what the limits are. But the, they, it's to the point where, you know, there's really no limit on how you can use it. They ask that you do it for non-commercial purposes. They've even bundled what used to cost 79 euros a year, the subscription to the Astaro up to date. Which, of course, everybody who's using it commercially gets. Uh, scalability via clustering up to 10 security gateways. I, I could just go on and on. It is it is the uh, only unified threat management vendor to be certified as VMware ready, by the way. They've got a great management console. If you have multiple ASGs, why don't you give it a try? 877, the number four, A-S-T-A-R-O, astaro.com. We thank him, as always, for being such loyal supporters of security now. All right, Steve, so we're building a, a machine language, and, we're, and it really is based on kind of the architecture of the CPU, isn't it? Well, I think what's significant, the, the, the point that's worth making is that even though I'm talking about an architecture that is 50 years old, this is still today exactly the way computers work. What I'm talking about is, is, a, is a simple CPU a simple central processing unit, but that the way the fundamentals haven't changed at all. Probably not even since Alan Turing imagined how a computer would work in the uh, in the forties, right? You know, it's, this is the fundamental way a computer works. So, so we've got a sixteen-bit word, and the the, the left-hand four bits are allocated to the opcode, which leaves us 14 bits for the address, meaning that it's a, that the word is two parts. There's what to do, and then the second part is, and what to do it with. So a 14-bit address gives us 16K words. If we think of like 10, 10 bits is 1K, um, 11 is 2K, 
12 bits is 4K, 13 bits is 8K, 14 bits is 16K. So the 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 right hand 14 bits is provides the address sort of the the address argument for the opcode verb. So say that the opcode 0000 stood for load the accumulator. So when when we fetch this 18 bits instruction into the instruction register there's some logic which looks at the combination of bits in the opcode and essentially does this one simple thing that the opcode specifies like load accumulator if all four of those bits are zero and so what that means is that the that 14 bit argument is used as the address to fetch another piece of data from memory, different from the instruction. We, inst- we, we fetch the instruction from where the program counter is pointing. Then we, we fetch the data from, from where the 14-bit argument of that instruction is pointing and load that into the accumulator. So the opcode 0001 might be store accumulator. And and then the 14 bits following it would specify where to store the accumulator. So with those two instructions, we have the ability of picking up data from somewhere and storing it somewhere else, moving the data from one place to another in memory. We might we would certainly have an instruction called add. That might be 0011. And what that would do is and then the 14 bits that follow would specify where to go to get the data to add to what's in memory. Again, it would, and, and this, this class of instructions are, are collectively called memory reference instructions because each of those opcodes references memory. It loads it, it stores it, it adds it to the accumulator, it might subtract it from the accumulator, it might and it against the accumulator or or it with the accumulator. Basically, very simple, you know, simple bit manipulations against the accumulator. Now, the computer is useless to us unless it's able to have some sort of I.O., some sort of input-output. So one of those instructions, which would not be a memory reference instruction, would be an I.O. instruction. Maybe that's like 1111, all the way at the other end, the 16th instruction 1111 that would it would be formatted differently that is the memory reference instructions were all an opcode followed by 14 bits that specified where in memory to do its thing whereas the 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 last instruction 1111 that's an io instruction so the other the, the rest of the 14 bits might for example specify an io device Many of the early computers had like, you could attach up to 64 devices. Well, 64 is another power of two, which you require six bits to specify. So there might be a field in those remaining 14 bits that's, that is, is a six-bit I.O. device number, meaning the teletype, the mag tape, the card reader, the card punch, 
you know, whatever device it was. And then the, some of the other bits might be start the device, stop the device, read the device, write the device, different bits that are that are about input-output rather than, well, because those apply to that specific instruction. So what we see is we see that the there's always a, a field in the instruction word for specifying the operation. And then depending upon that operation, the remaining bits provide arguments of one form or another to it. Now, at this point, we've got a computer which is able to move through memory, incrementing its program counter once for every instruction and reading what's there and causing something to happen. Read, you know, load and store, before, you know, input something, output something. The problem is it just goes in a straight line. And while that's certainly what you want some of the time, one of the things that computers do is make decisions. And, and that requires altering the normal linear incrementation to jump somewhere else. Um, one of the, 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 the way this was done then and even now um, was to have a skip instruction, the ability to skip over a word in memory. Even though that wasn't very powerful, it was powerful enough because what you what you might have had and, and certainly would have, one of our instructions, we talked about load and store and add and so forth. Well, one of those, like instruction 8, 1, 0, 0, 0, that instruction could be the jump instruction. And so when we when we load the instruction in the instruction register, and the opcode is 1000, that is the first, the left-hand four bits is that pattern, well, the argument to that instruction, the other 14 bits, is the address we want to jump to. So all the computer does is it loads that 14 bits into the program counter. So that instead of the program counter incrementing one at a time, we've just replaced the contents of the program counter with the 14 bits in the jump instruction, which means that the next instruction we fetch is at that location. We've just jumped our program execution to a different place. That's all there is to it. And so the way the skip comes into play is that if we if we tested something, like say that one of our instructions was skip if the accumulator is zero or skip if the accumulator is not zero, you know, that kind of thing. Well, if we were to subtract two items and they were the same, then that is if they were equal, then the result would be zero. So that allows us to determine if two things are are equal or not. And if we had an instruction that said, skip if the accumulator is zero, then the instruction it's skipping over would be a jump instruction, which is, this is all a very simple way of implementing the, the, the control of the program's flow. So that if the, if, the, if the two things we were comparing were not the same, 
the accumulator would not be zero, so we would not skip the instruction that follows. That instruction that follows would be jump completely somewhere else. If we so that if we if we don't skip, then we land on that jump instruction and go completely somewhere else. If the accumulator was zero, we skip over that jump instruction. And all skipping means is instead of adding one to the program counter, we add two or we add one twice, which is actually how these machines worked back then. And that just causes to skip over a jump. So essentially, that means we can branch to anywhere we want to in memory or continue on our way, which gives us, even though that's very simple, that gives us enough power to allow machines to make decisions. And um, we've got input-output, we've got math, we've got the ability to transfer data from one location in memory to another. Those are all the essentials of the way a machine functions. That is machine language. Now, the one, the one layer of, of humanity that's put on top of that is, is what's called assembly language, which is nothing but naming things. For example, you, you create a, a sort of a, a so-called mnemonic for the different instructions. So, for example, load the accumulator would be LDA. Store the accumulator, STA. Um, you want them to be short because you're going to be typing them a lot. Remember that, you know, you end up using lots of little instructions in order to get something done. Um, and then the only other thing really that assembly language does, it allows you to name locations in memory. So, for example, you, you might say LDA for load accumulator, uh, current score. And, and current score would simply refer to a, 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 like a variable, essentially, a location in memory that you had labeled current score. And then if you did STA, store accumulator, new score, well, it would first load the current score into the accumulator and then store that into a different location called new store or new, new score. So really that's all we're talking about is some simple abbreviations for helping sort of remember and use these individual instructions and and convenient labels for locations in memory so that you're not having to remember oh that's in location 329627 i mean who can do that so instead you you just you label that location with a a an um an english um you know a, an an alphanumeric phrase of some sort and then you refer to that location by the phrase rather than by its actual number. And in fact, you don't care what the number is. That's one of the things that the assembler will do for you is you just say, I need memory called these things. And it worries about where they go because it doesn't really matter to you as long as they're, they're consistently referred to. Um, and that's the whole process. That's machine language and assembly language. And that's the way it was 50 years ago, and more or less, that's the way it is now. Very cool. It's amazing, really. 
Uh, and it is. You know, we referred to it the other day as a as a as a dumb box of rocks that yeah. was just very fast. Exactly. And and, and this is this is what's. I think that was the most valuable thing about me learning how assembler works is you see every individual thing it does. And so you see exactly that. That's the lesson is it's not doing very much. It's, it's, <laughs> it's why, just doing it fast. It's why I like it because nothing is hidden. Right. That is, there's nothing going on underneath that. One of the problems that I see programmers having is they assume that the compiler like a, a C programmer, is expressing much more abstract things. For example, you know, when you're dealing at the machine level, you're, you are truly dealing with fixed numbers of bits that you're moving around under your command. When you abstract that a lot, you're now talking about sort of, you know, like double precision something. And the, but, but the details matter. And it's where the programmer assumes that something is going to be done for him or her by the compiler that the compiler doesn't agree with. The compiler says, no, that's not what you told me to do. I'm going to go off and do this. You know, so that kind of miscommunication in, the, in assumptions is where a lot of problems crop up. And for me... By dealing with it, by insisting on actually doing the individual small little bite-sized pieces, there's no room for argument. Yeah. I mean, when I make a mistake, it's mine. It's because I, you know, I told the computer, move this chunk of bits over here, and that was the wrong place to go. It's not that I told it something and it did something different. Yeah. Well, doesn't mean there are no bugs or surprises. <laughs> I mean, because you, you know, humans may think they're saying one thing and the computer think another, but it's much less ambiguous. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's pretty clear. And there, you know, I guess there, I would guess there's kind of fewer interactions. Although I don't know about you, but as I used Assembler, I built larger and larger macros that, in effect, represented higher level commands. You must do that, right? You're not going to write out each little thing every single time. Well, we're going to talk, one of the things we're going to talk about in two weeks is the nature of indirection and pointers. Oh, boy, that's fun. And, and oh, boy, if you, so, that was, there are two things I found very difficult to learn in programming. Indirection was one and recursion was the other. It's hard. It, you, it requires, it requires you being very clear about whether you mean something or the thing that that right. thing points to. I remember very well. Now it's now it's obvious to me, but I do remember very well when I first started writing in C, learning where to you know put that little carrot and where not to. <laughs> oh, that's this is this will be fun. Yeah, this will be fun. Oh, I'm really enjoying this, Steve, and it's bringing back memories. And it makes me want to drag out my copy of MSM. Well, and I mean what we just described. I mean that is what I described is a working computer right. that has everything it needs to get something done. And the the I think the mystery or or the surprise is that just that. I mean that's all our computers do. They load and store and perform simple operations on little bits of data. And I mean look what we get as a result because they're able to, because there's enough of these little bits of data and it's able to do stuff so fast that they perform, you know, magic really. Very awesome. Steve Gibson, you demand. Thank you very much for this show and everything you do. If you are a, 
at all interested in more of Steve, you can get all the Steve you want at GRC.com. That's the Gibson Research Corporation, GRC.com. That's where Spinrite lives. You might as well just run over there and get one right now. You're going to need it someday. If you've got a hard drive, you need Spinrite, the world's best, frankly, only decent hard drive recovery and maintenance utility, GRC.com. While you're there, uh, check out this show's notes, transcriptions, 16 kilobit versions for the bandwidth impaired. So you've got great show notes. We have some uh, visitors in the studio, Stephen, uh, and uh, uh, what's your name? Alex was saying uh, that as a, a student, a computer science student, uh, we had an assignment to uh, talk about uh, web security, and he went to the show notes, and he got the transcriptions, and he says, the only thing that really helped me understand it so I could write this paper. So you cool. really you really provide a real service. GRC.com. You can watch the show. We do it live every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. I'm sorry, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. That's 1800 UTC at live.twit.com. TV and of course iTunes and the Zoom store and all the Winamp. Everybody has a has a subscription to this podcast, but you can find it directly at twit.tv slash SN. There's a little subscription to drop down there and you can pick your pick your poison. GRC.com for Steve's site, TWIT.tv slash SN for ours. Steve, we'll see you next week. Talk to you then, Leo. Thanks. Security now.